The electrical system issues in the human heart are not confined to strictly older people. We're talking with cardiologist Dr. Cara Garofalo. She is a pediatric cardiologist. And one of the areas of, of specialization for you is sudden cardiac arrest. What is that? Sudden cardiac arrest is a sudden loss of the heart's function, leading to loss of blood flow to the brain and other vital organs, resulting in loss of consciousness, loss of breathing, and if not treated within minutes, usually death. It's very rare in children, but so tragic when it does occur. You know, I've been working in news my whole career, and every now and then there's that very sad story about a high school athlete in the middle of a football game or a basketball game and, and just, just really pounding across the court, and they just drop. Is that, sadly, in this day and age, sometimes the first time we find out about a propensity for this? Sometimes that sudden, sudden event is the identifying event, but there are often um, preceding symptoms which are important to know about and to pursue if they are occurring. Conditions that can lead to a sudden cardiac arrest are um, often inherited conditions and can occur in athletes and non-athletes alike. And though we hear about it most often on the field, the events can happen in any situation, really. The abbreviation for this is SCA, sudden cardiac arrest. Is it different in children versus adults? So the causes of sudden cardiac arrest in children are most often inherited conditions, and these can present at any age. So there is some overlap between the causes of SCA in children and adults. The most common cause in adults, however, is coronary artery disease, so heart attacks um, caused by blockage of the coronary arteries, and that is very rare in kids. How does it come to that crisis point in children? What causes sudden cardiac arrest, death in kids? There are th three main categories of causes of sudden cardiac arrest in children. Three categories are conditions. The first is abnormalities of the electrical system of the heart. The second involves abnormalities of the heart muscle. And the third involves abnormalities of the heart blood vessels, particularly the coronary arteries. There's an entire universe of medical conditions that could lead to a possible SCA. So in the a category of electrical issues that would include a condition called long QT syndrome, an abnormality of how the electricity goes through the heart when the heart is relaxing that can lead to a fatal arrhythmia. Another condition is catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, another um, abnormality of how the electricity is conducted through the heart, and um, this condition can result in arrhythmia, uh, particularly during exercise. Another category is abnormalities of the heart muscle, including hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and another condition called arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. Um, in these conditions, the heart muscle can enlarge, or um, in the case of arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, the heart muscle can be replaced over time by a fatty tissue, and both conditions can lead to arrhythmia. How common is this? The CDC provides a number of about 2,000 sudden deaths due to arrhythmia in young people under the age of 25 per year. Then let's talk about the signs and, and symptoms of it, and what do you look for when you're doing a physical of a kid, or, or that anybody should look for as, as a red flag? 
So a very important red flag um, or risk factor is a family history of sudden cardiac arrest or death under the age of 50 or known diagnosis of one of the conditions known to be associated with sudden cardiac arrest in a family member. Signs and symptoms in the child may include chest pain, shortness of breath, or dizziness during exercise, fainting or seizure during exercise. Those are all very important symptoms to be aware of. How early could you be seeing symptoms like this in a young person? Elementary school age or, or high school athlete? or what, What's the range on this? So the average age is about 11, but um, presentation can be earlier or later. How alarming. The symptoms that you, you talked about, the lightheadedness, the shortness of breath, the, the fatigue after exercise, etc., is this when you find out about some of these issues you just described, these conditions? So symptoms can be the precipitating factor. Family history or evaluation based on family history can lead to a diagnosis or um, screenings for another issue. If a child is complaining of chest pain, um, they'll, if they see a cardiologist, they'll usually have an EKG done, and we may see abnormalities on the EKG that can point us in that direction. Uh, a heart murmur might be a clue to a hypertrophic presence of a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy due to thickening of the muscle and obstruction to blood flow causing the murmur. So there are all different paths to arriving at a diagnosis. There is a lot of variability in presentation, though. Um, even individuals in the same family with a genetic diagnosis can have tremendous variability where one person might have suffered a sudden cardiac arrest at a young age. Another person might have lived with the diagnosis till old age right. and found out about it incidentally. So there is a lot of variability, and that's why the detailed evaluation and risk assessment is important. But symptomology, when kids complaining of symptoms, that should be your big red flag. Yes. Well, how do we prevent it? There are two avenues to prevention. Um, this is primary and secondary prevention. Primary prevention involves identifying and treating children at risk, and secondary involves equipping the community to responding to a sudden cardiac arrest event. Break that down a little bit, identifying it and preparing of the patient, and then preparing the community. What would that entail? So identifying patients at risk involves educating families, primary care physicians, teachers, coaches about the symptoms and the risk factors that we talked about, conducting screening cardiac risk assessments beginning at a young age, just reviewing the, the questions related to family history, personal history, and signs and symptoms at regular intervals throughout the child's life and at the time of pre-participation evaluations. We're talking with cardiologist Dr. Kara Garofalo. She is a pediatric cardiologist. What kind of diagnostics are involved to identify this young person to then prepare their community? So the first is the um, good history taking, a physical exam, listening to the child's heart, taking their vital signs, and the family history. An electrocardiogram is performed in a cardiologist's office. It's not required as screening for athletes in the United States. And if there are any concerns raised by any one of those points of evaluation, an echocardiogram 
and potentially um, more advanced diagnostic imaging or exercise testing could also be performed. Yeah, that was my question, whether you put the kid on a treadmill. Right. Athletes then not required to have an EKG before playing? That's true. Not in the U.S. In Europe, they are. And it's a point of ongoing debate. Is this more common in athletes than other students? So the conditions are not more common in athletes. The intensity of physical activity required for competitive athletics um, increases the demand on the heart and increases a hormone in the blood called adrenaline. And both of these things can be triggers for a sudden cardiac arrest. Other triggers? Other triggers, depending on the diagnosis, can include um, sudden auditory stimuli, like loud noises, or anything that causes a, a startle. Living with the risk of SCA, it's not a death sentence, but it is a lifestyle. Is that a, a way to look at it? If you find out that you are at risk for SCA, is that a ticking time bomb or it's a management issue? So it's life-altering. It really is a management issue, especially when diagnosed early and preemptively. And um, there are steps that help families understand the level of risk that a child may or may not be at related to the specifics of their disease and how it's presenting specifically in them because it really varies from person to person. Management decisions are made based on so many different factors. The initial diagnosis is overwhelming to the child and the family. The most important point, I believe, at the time of diagnosis is emphasizing that it's so important that the diagnosis was made and that there are steps that can be taken to protect the child through medications or an implanted defibrillator. There are often um, sports restrictions that have to be um, implemented. Part of it is being aware of their own body and symptoms that may be warning signs to them, either palpitations, dizziness, a change in their exercise tolerance, chest pain, um, any of the warning signs and symptoms that we talk about as um, helping lead to diagnosis would be of concern in someone already with a diagnosis. And just reviewing with them what situations or triggers might make them more at risk. And that's something that's very difficult to impress on a teenager especially. This sounds to me like if you've got the risk factors and it's a question of DNA being destiny or some other bad luck, is there some kind of prevention protocol parents should be aware of? Right. If there are risk factors in the family or if they're just concerned or if they know that their child has complained of certain symptoms, it's important to raise the, the concerns with the, with the pediatrician and, um, and a pediatric cardiologist. It's so important to be aware of your family's heart history and to review that with a cardiologist to determine if there may be a potential risk to yourself or the, or the children. What are the ways that a child might complain of symptoms? Because kids use different phrases to describe feelings, physical sensations, than adults do. Adults will say, I'm lightheaded or I'm short of breath. How might a child express symptoms that would get your attention? So they're often very descriptive about their symptoms in different ways. And sometimes you do have to ask a lot of questions to try to get them to clarify what they're feeling and what the circumstances are. And I always say to them, I know this sounds like a thousand questions, but it's important to get to the bottom of what's going on and figure out what's going on and how we can help. But they are surprisingly very, very expressive about what they're feeling. 
So for a parent who is witnessing symptoms and the questions are roiling, what's the best way to put all that to rest? So it's important to pursue those questions and concerns with your primary physician. Full evaluations can also be performed in our pediatric cardiology offices. But it's always best to pursue any concerns that you may have for peace of mind, either ruling out a condition or allowing you to pursue further investigation to arrive at a diagnosis. So they can call the office and schedule a full medical evaluation at a later date, either in our office here at Deborah or our office in Manahawkin. If you've been suspecting something's wrong with your kid, however they've been expressing, whatever you've been seeing, I mean, parents, even the busiest parents, get the vibe. And you may not want to process that, that there may be something seriously wrong. And then you get the news that there is a heart issue that could seriously restrict your kid's lifestyle, change their the trajectory you had in mind for them if they were athletically inclined, or just shift their view of what their future might be like. How do you reassure parents on how you live with this and live well with diagnosed possibility of SCA? How do you frame it? Yeah. Really? So the diagnosis is always overwhelming and it really does or can cause a shift in expectations and dreams and goals. But I always try to have them take a step back and emphasize how important it is that the condition was diagnosed preemptively and that there is treatment and support. Can you live a normal teenage life? Can you go dance your your face off at the school dance? Can you participate in some sports? How much smaller does that world have to get? So for each diagnosis, there's a process of risk stratification that helps identify how at risk a particular child is for a dangerous arrhythmia or sudden cardiac arrest. And based on those further investigations, decisions would be made um, regarding medication, implantation of a defibrillator, and sports restrictions. There are different classifications of types of sports, categories um, including intense isometric activity versus aerobic activity, and degrees of activity from mild, moderate, to severe, and depending on the diagnosis and the risk level, kids may be able to participate in certain activities and not others. It's an individual decision, and there's um, there's a concept called shared decision-making, where the doctor will go over the diagnosis and the risks in relation to uh, different activities. Thanks for checking out this important discussion about atrial fibrillation and sudden cardiac arrest in children. Electrical disturbances in the heart that lead to atrial fibrillation are the focus of our next guest, Deborah's Dr. Rafael Corbizero. Now I'm talking with Dr. Rafael Corbizero. He's a cardiac electrophysiologist at Deborah Heart and Lung Center in the heart of New Jersey, and we're talking about AFib. Now, atrial fibrillation, when I researched this, one word kept popping up in the descriptions, the explanations chaos, chaotic rhythms, chaotic heart rates. So give us the latest understanding of AFib and how it throws the cardiovascular system into chaos. Well, to, to understand that, let's, let's just define a normal heartbeat. So a normal heartbeat runs top to bottom. So there's a area that's in charge of the rhythm in the top part of the heart called the sinus node, sort of our own built-in pacemaker. This is what starts our heart rate. 
So whatever the body wants, this pacemaker is able to uh, understand and give us the heart rate. When it sends out a signal, it sends out one dominant signal to trigger the whole top part of the heart to beat in unison. That's a normal atrial contraction. That's how we start our heart rhythm. What atrial fibrillation is, is that pacemaker area is thrown out of control. So it's no longer electrically in control. So instead of having one dominant signal, the atria, the top part of the heart, now has five or 600 signals that sort of work independently. So if you look at the word atrial, top part of the heart, fibrillation is Latin for if you looked at it, it would look like the heart was just, it looked like a bunch of worms. So there's no organized contraction, it's just electrical chaos. So the heart is just quivering or fibrillating. When you talk about the signal to the heart, you're talking about the signal per heartbeat. Correct. So if you've got hundreds of chaotic signals, that's per heartbeat. Correct. The, the, the top part of the heart actually goes at about five or 600 beats a minute. Now, luckily, whoever invented the electrical system was, was quite intelligent. Um, those signals cannot make it down to the bottom part of the heart because we have a relay center in the bottom part of the heart that doesn't allow that many signals to get down there because that would be catastrophic for our patients. So the, the signals that get through the relay center are very, very intermittent. So what people feel, right, they feel the bottom part of the heart, right, because that's the part of the heart that, where the muscle is, that's the part of the heart that's stronger, that's your actual heartbeat that you feel. So those five or 600 chaotic signals don't all make it down to the bottom part of the heart. They get down intermittently, so people will feel their heart skipping because some signals get through, some don't. So all those terms about your heart skipping a beat, your heart being all a flutter, all of that being some kind of happy emotional state, this is not a good sign. No. no okay. Your heart needs to be addressed. All right. So what, what causes AFib? Who's at risk for this kind of shuddering effect? Well, it turns out um, about... Uh, 20, 25 years ago in Bordeaux, France, they, they found the origins of AFib, how it starts in most of us. It turns out that we have some rogue electrical tissue as, as we developed when we're in utero. There's some rogue electrical tissue that gets spread out through the, the heart and it ends up in the pulmonary veins, the veins that come from the lung. And if those signals become active and get into the heart, that's enough to throw our own normal pacemaker out of control, and that initiates the AFib. Unfortunately, a lot of us are, are built this way. There's nothing really hereditary about it. Uh, it those signals get more active as we get older. Uh, so AFib is more common as we get older. We first start to see it uh, at age 40, but by the time we hit 70, 80 years of age, 20 to 30% of us may have it in some fashion or another rogue tissue mm -hmm. scattered throughout? Well, as the, as the electrical system develops in, in utero, you know, the, you, you know, you start from one cell, and as it starts to develop, the electrical system should develop in a straight line top to bottom on the right uh, septal side of the heart. But, you know, nothing is perfect, so there is some electrical tissue uh, that gets scattered. So that's the cause of most abnormal rhythms that we see. There's extra tissue left here or there that may cause a problem. So behavioral issues, medical conditions, that's not the biggest marker for AFib? Well, AFib for a lot of diagnosis is really its own problem most of the time. But we do always work up the rest of the, the heart first and other medical issues. 
So AFib may be the result of valvular heart disease, uh, ischemic heart disease, blockages. So we work that up first to see if there's, there's you know, an underlying cardiac cause. The other thing we always rule out with atrial fibrillation is, do you have sleep apnea? Because sleep apnea is a big trigger for atrial fibrillation. And the other is thyroid disease. Okay, If you have uh, an overactive or underactive thyroid, that may lead to increased episodes of atrial fibrillation. So we'll do all that first before we start treating just the atrial fibrillation. So that would be AFib possibly being a marker for something else going on. Correct. Correct. So the symptoms of atrial fibrillation, is it gradual? Is it on and off? Is, is there a defined arc to identifying it? The, the symptoms for atrial fibrillation are very subjective. We have patients with atrial fibrillation who have no idea that there's anything wrong, and they do everything that they want to do and have no idea that their heart rate it goes from you know, 30 to 200, and they just feel fine. And then we have other patients that feel every 10-second episode of AFib. They feel their heart flutter, they can't function, they get short of breath, they have chest pain. But in general, what I would say that most people and actually most cardiologists don't recognize is that if you have atrial fibrillation, it can be very subtle. It's associated with change in mental status, change in digestion. Um, a, lot of, a lot of my patients, when they come in and they have this diagnosis that they don't know about, they just say, I, I guess I'm just getting old. That's all. I just feel like I'm getting old. But when you take care of the AFib, they feel better. You know, I understand the, the lightheadedness or, or mental status changes, you know, with blood flow, but changes in digestion, you don't connect that to a heart problem. Well, blood flow is everywhere, right? Yeah. So, so it can be subtle. That's what, that's what people kind of don't recognize. It's not always the dramatic, you know, my heart is racing, I can't breathe, I can't catch my breath, I'm having chest discomfort, I've passed out. Those are very dramatic signs that, that can be related to AFib. But, but what most people don't realize and what I get concerned about is when people sort of ignore AFib and let these subtle signs go because the longer you leave AFib alone, the harder it is to treat. All right. So the, the big reasons to get it under control. You can understand if you're in atrial fibrillation and the top part of the heart is quivering, no longer beating normally, not all the blood is going to be pushed from the top to the bottom. So blood may, quote unquote, hang out, stagnate, and form a clot. If that clot forms and is pumped out of the heart, it may go anywhere, but the worst place it can go is the brain, so you're at risk for stroke. That is the worst consequence of atrial fibrillation, so that's why you need to get it under control. The other is the development of cardiomyopathy. The heart doesn't like to be pushed and raced all the time and sometimes will give out. If the bottom part gives out and you develop a cardiomyopathy and you develop congestive heart failure, then your life is going to be shortened. So you really want to prevent that if you could. Then the other things about atrial fibrillation are, are more subtle that we don't realize, that it can affect mental status function, may enhance uh, dementia, may affect our overall uh, digestion, mood, uh, things that are subtle that people don't really you know, attribute to AFib. But really, AFib is very widespread with many manifestations. And really, the, the earlier you treat it, the better the patient will do in the long run. So AFib can feel like a flutter in the chest, but there is a condition called atrial flutter. So what is that? How does that relate to AFib? You treat it the same way? Well. So atrial flutter is related to atrial fibrillation. In fact, the two of them occur about 70% of the time at, uh, in the same patient. So whereas fibrillation is completely disorganized from an electrical standpoint, flutter is an organized abnormal circuit that runs usually in the top right part of the heart. 
It's a circuit that runs at 300 beats a minute, and it's organized. The heart is fluttering in the sense that there are 300 contractions going on at the time. It is treated the same way as fibrillation, so you're still at risk for clot formation and stroke, still at risk for disturbing the, the bottom part of the heart and having heart failure. So when you're revving in that particular part of the heart, you guys would basically say, looks like atrial flutter. Correct. I'm talking with Dr. Rafael Corbiziero. He's a cardiac electrophysiologist at Deborah Heart and Lung Center in the heart of New Jersey, and we're talking about AFib. The, the main diagnosis is really from, from an EKG, electrocardiography, and monitoring. And that's, that's how we diagnose. We, we can see it on the EKG. How much data do you need? Uh, usually, you know, once you see it, the diagnosis is made. So I tell my patients all the time, it's like you have high blood pressure or diabetes. That's your diagnosis. You're always going to have that. We're going to treat it so that, you know, there are no, no ill effects of it for you in the future. But that's your diagnosis. It never goes away. Well, I guess what I was asking is, is how long do you have to watch somebody with, with AFib? Because sometimes it comes and goes. So if it really is a rare event, we'll, still, we'll watch the patient. Once we make the diagnosis of AFib, we will always monitor that patient. What we used to do for monitoring from a cardiac standpoint is we used to you know, have the patient wear a halter or a 24-hour monitor, uh, which we progressed to like event monitors, which we can go for a week or two. But in this day and age, you know, you can get it from your watch. Um, there's a device called a Cardia that you can get, put on your phone. You can act, the patients can monitor themselves to see how they're having, you know, a, a, any, any uh, AFib episodes. All right, so diagnosed, what's the next step? How do you decide to treat? So that's a, a question that's in flux right now. In the past, once we've diagnosed AFib, if the patient was doing relatively well, a lot of people would wait on it. Um, they would say, yeah, it's not, it's not a life-threatening rhythm problem. Let's watch it. Let's see how it goes. In this day and age, especially with, in the field of electrophysiology, we're more inclined to treat it early. And the analogy I always make is with cancer. Uh, you know, if you find cancer, a lot of people don't wait on it. <laughs> they treat it as aggressively as possible. The, the best symbol we have in American medicine is, is the breast cancer symbol. When you see that, that symbol, it denotes that we have a plan, we're going to be aggressive. And why? The earlier you treat something, the better the long-term results. And I think that's where we're headed with AFib. Once we see AFib and the patient has it, the earlier you treat it, the better the long-term results with the patient. So treatment options? So treatment options uh, are usually the same uh, for all patients. They include medications, simple medications or sophisticated medications. Rarely, pacemakers are in order for this, for this condition. And then the procedure that's becoming more and more popular is the ablation procedure. Tell us all about that one. With the diagnosis of, of atrial fibrillation and the origins uh, of it, it comes, like I said, in 95% in of people, it comes from rogue electrical tissue in the pulmonary veins. This was discovered in, I believe, Bordeaux, France. And they figured out that if we do an ablation procedure, which it, ablation means to try to get rid of a problem, the ablation procedure tries to isolate those electrical signals and not allow them to leave the pulmonary veins. If they can't leave the pulmonary veins, they can't initiate a, uh, an episode of atrial fibrillation. So you, you cut off the path of the signal. Right. We try to basically create an electrical fence around the, those veins. All right. I want to get into ablation a little more, but, but is this something you want to try after drugs don't seem to be effective? I mean, is drugs 
uh, you know, medications the preferred route to treat? So recently, we, we've actually looked at that. There's a trial called Cabana that came out and looked at rhythm drugs versus ablation procedure. That's a trial that went over the last 10 years, uh, over 2,000 patients. And really what we found, if you look at how patients were treated, ablation was clearly the better approach than, than, than rhythm drugs. Because the drugs you would be on for long term, but ablation, it's your one and done. I would not say that about ablations for atrial fibrillation. Okay. Um, the ablation is a procedure um, that's not perfect. The earlier you get to the patient, the better the chance of long-term success. However, the best we can say is, is 70 80% chance that we get everything the first time around. So I always tell my patients, it's, it's not a one and done. It, it may be a, a stage procedure. You may need several ablations for atrial fibrillation, but if you have a couple of ablations over a couple of years, and the rest of the time you're in normal rhythm, I consider that better than taking a rhythm drug every day. Exactly what is an ablation? So an ablation is a procedure. It's not surgery. The approach for the atrial fibrillation ablation is from the vein of the leg. You go up the vein and into the heart. With? A catheter. A catheter is uh, basically an electrical wire, the tip of which is able to generate heat. That catheter is introduced to the top left atrium with a crossover, crossover move called a transeptal puncture where we enter the left atrium. Then that catheter is steered, moved around the pulmonary veins. It's basically creating a circle around those veins and the tip of it is able to generate heat in the radio frequency uh, range to try to cauterize the tissue of the atrium so that it can't conduct an electrical signal so that if the AFib signal in the vein tries to get out, it can't cross the fence. What guides the catheter and how are you locating the rogue tissue that you need to, to address? Well, we're, we're isolating that tissue, right? Because we don't want to actually do any burning inside the veins because that would, that would cause problems with the veins. They, they would start to stenose and stuff. So we're in the body of the left atrium. We have imaging techniques, ultrasound, to see what the heart looks like. And then when we get up there, before we start the actual ablation procedure, we have a special catheter that creates an electrical map of the atrium. And we can actually, uh, we use CAT scan to kind of merge that image with the electrical image. So it's almost like virtual surgery. So that's how we're guided. We, get, we build our own anatomy so we know exactly where the veins are and how the left atrium is built. So do you have the, the mapping catheter in there working at the same time as the ablating catheter? You can, but usually you make the map first. I take that catheter out and then put up the ablation catheter, and then I'm able to see that catheter on my mapping system. So it's sort of on screen for me where I ha I've had the map. I know what the left atrium is built like. I know where the veins are. Then I can see my catheter and then direct my ablation around those veins. Because everybody's map is going to be different in some way. Yes. Veins, veins vary quite a bit. Everybody's left atrium varies quite a bit. Most people have four veins, two on the left, two on the right, but it can vary from three to you know, five or six. When you find the area and you have to activate the ablating catheter, mm -hmm. what exactly is, is happening when you activate it? So usually what we do is we'll draw our own circle on our map and we'll try to follow that. Once the ablation catheter is on the circle that we've drawn, Basically, we'll push a pedal that will deliver radio frequency energy on that area, and we can watch as the signal goes down um, on that tissue so that it can't conduct signals anymore. So you're just zapping. 
tapping. Uh, how long does, does a typical ablation session, the mapping, the, the whole thing, how long does that take? When we started, th these procedures would take three, four, five hours. But now we're, we're down, especially at Deborah, my partner and I are down to, usually we can do our work in about an hour, wow. hour and a half. So here at Deborah, we do predominantly most of our AFA ablations with robotic ablation, a system that's called stereotaxis. The reason that we instituted this about over 10 years ago was you, you understand how the heart is built. The top part is thinner than the bottom part. Bottom part has more muscle, top part's thinner. So you're manipulating a catheter in a thin area. Uh, one of the things that we saw in the beginning was that there were incidences of perforation as high as 5 to 10%. Perforation of the heart would allow you know, uh, fluid to accumulate around the heart, which would be a problem that would have to be drained, and that's the end of the ablation procedure. So we were researching that when we found robotic ablation, the purpose of which the ablation catheter for robotics is a very flimsy catheter. The reason being is instead of it being manipulated and pushed by our hands, it's actually being steered by a computer at magnets that are around the patient. So the way that it's built, even if we took a robotic ablation catheter and pointed it straight at the heart and told it to go there, it would fold. It would not be strong enough to actually perforate the heart. So we thought that that was safer. And then what we found when we started to look at this is if you look at the robotic ablation catheter, because it's so flimsy, you put it on a heart tissue, it stays with the heartbeat as opposed to a stiffer catheter which would bounce. So we were getting a better ablation. So it's so, just much more specifically targeted then. Correct. Correct. So we thought it was safer and better. Now, the other great thing about it from our standpoint, uh, this is an uh, x-ray procedure, okay? So we're using a lot of fluoroscopy, uh, especially in the beginning. The patient and the doctor would get sometimes as much as 60, 70 minutes worth of x-ray. With robotics, once it's set up and we go to the computer, we don't have to use x-ray. So our x-ray times for our patients have gone down to less than five minutes. So there's less exposure for everybody. Correct. In terms of the advantages for the patient, I think that the ablation procedure gives better long-term results and has the ability to hopefully get patients off of medications. My prejudice for most of my patients, if I can get them off medications, uh, that, that's a big win because one of the biggest problems, in my opinion, in this country is, is over-medications, compliance with medications. It's really tough on our patients. Are these medications the kind that have a lot of side effects, uh, or, or is it really just the fact of the, the compliance and having to just keep popping pills? The, well, it's, it's compliance. It's tough on patients. Uh, most of the drugs that, that are, are um, prescribed are at least twice a day. The, the drugs for atrial fibrillation are two-tiered. There's the initial tier that we start with. Uh, those drugs have the major side effect of you have to watch that they might not cause rhythm problems. It's the nature of the beast with a rhythm drug. So in most of our patients, when we use a true rhythm suppression drug, we will actually admit them to the hospital for monitoring because sometimes the effects are a little too strong and may affect the AKG and make them uh, at risk for very bad heart rhythm problems. That may occur 5 to 10% of the time. Those drugs usually, will, like those ones we'll start with, their success rate runs 50 to 60%, and most of them will not be efficacious in within five years. Whereas after ablation, as many as uh, sessions as, as are required to zap 
mm -hmm. the, the tissue, you're going back to a normal lifestyle. Right. Correct. You not have to take medications and hopefully you'll get a better result. There is one drug that we, we should discuss. That's the next drug as the second tier, as opposed to the first tier rhythm drugs. There's a drug called amiodarone, which is the best drug for atrial fibrillation, hands down. However, uh, it has serious, serious side effects that are usually long-term. And this is not something that you want the patients to be on for any length of time, you know, years and years. We do use the drug, and people will ask, well, you know, how is a drug like that still available? Because it's the best, best rhythm drug there, that's out there. But we at Deborah really just try to use it short-term. So we may initially use that for AFib until the ablation procedure is done and takes hold, and then we try to get the patient off that drug. When you say takes hold, when do you know that it has? When we do the ablation procedure, th this is uh, you know, a little bit of a traumatic event with a catheter in the heart laying down the, the quote-unquote zap lines. Um, those usually have to heal and form in. We, we give it usually three months before we say that the ablation is sort of taken hold. That the rhythms have, have settled down and, and right. you've got the outcome you wanted. Correct. Yeah. We always tell patients, you know, right after the ablation, if we see atrial fibrillation the next day or the next week, that's not necessarily a bad sign or, or a sign of failure. That's just the heart just had a procedure done. Is there a difference in terms of patients being eligible for one type of ablation, the manual over the stereotaxis, and, and just being eligible for an ablation procedure overall? I mean, you talked about wanting to, to keep people off the drugs, but is ablation available to anybody with AFib? Well, the, the answer to that is yes, uh, but it also depends on, on the patient themselves. The, the biggest issue is, is when we get to the patient with their AFib. So if someone comes in for uh, an evaluation for an ablation and they've had AFib for 10 years or 15 years and the, the, the structure of the heart has been changed because of AFib, and the left atrium is very enlarged or dilated, we tend not to offer ablation to those patients because the chance of success is so low. There's no reason to go through a procedure without a chance of success. So in the chronic patients, that's a problem. Now, having said that, the future of, of AFib, is we may be able to treat chronic atrial fibrillation a little bit more effectively once we get different mapping catheters. The ablation procedure would stay the same, but we're developing mapping catheters that will tell us a lot more about AFib and might allow us a strategy to really treat the chronic patient. But that's coming. But, you know, I guess when you say somebody comes in and they've, you can tell when you see the heart mm -hmm. and, and do your imaging and your, your, all the diagnostic whether this has been going on for a while. I guess for somebody who's not noticing the symptoms, because as we've discussed, some people, they don't feel it. Um, I guess that's the tragedy that, wow, I had no idea this was going on, and now I've got to be on drugs. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a shame, too, because even if they're not feeling it and they feel fine, remember, there's still there's the risk of stroke, and there's the risk of developing a cardiomyopathy with this. Do people stumble on this diagnosis? Yes. This, this happens more often than we know that patients actually go in for one procedure, and anesthesia cancels the case because they have a diagnosis of AFib. Wow. That shocking. happens quite often. Well, but I guess that's good news to know. Right. Well, in this day and age, to be honest, like I said, with monitoring the way it is between your phones and your watches and stuff, we'll, we'll be seeing more and more of this. Remember, this is the most common rhythm problem in the world. Almost 2% of the planet has this problem in one form, one form or another. 
All right, but now with all the monitoring and, and all the things you can get on your smartphone and, and Dr. Google, and do you get people running in saying, I think I have, I may have AFib? I mean, is, is there also kind of self-diagnosing going on? I don't get a lot of people diagnosing themselves, but we do have a lot of patients, once the AFib is, is seen medically, a lot of patients will monitor themselves on a regular basis. And so it's changed, actually, over the years. It's evolved quite a bit. We, we had some, you know, very um, type A patients who would come in with books, and they've written down everything. But now everything is more computerized, so it's, it's on their watch, it's on their laptop. I've had, I had a patient yesterday show me on the laptop how their heart rate variations were going. They Fine. would check it every day. Um, <laughs> all right, so patient experience then um, with an ablation. Um, what's, what's the ramp up to it? What's the downtime after? What, what's it like for a patient to go through an ablation? So for a standard ablation, it's a three-day process for us. There's one day of pre-testing. So usually what we want to do, depending upon the patient, is at least do some imaging the day before. Really the CAT scan is key, so we know what the anatomy of the left atrium and the pulmonary veins are. Sometimes we'll do what's called the transesophageal echo, the, the camera that, uh, that they swallow, to get a good look at the top part of the heart, make sure there's no clots or anything that, that uh, is going to be a problem with the catheter being introduced there. Then they can either go home or stay that night. The next day we do the procedure. Uh, the procedure is done, like I said, in, in the uh, we usually do it in the stereotaxis lab. Usually we're done, the whole procedure will take us two to three hours simply because there's a lot of prep work, especially with robotics. There's a lot of patching. Anesthesia has to make sure the patient's very comfortable and still. Then, then me or my partner will do the procedure, uh, which will take an hour. Then they'll get off the table and recover. Uh, there is bed rest after the procedure, four hours. They usually stay the night and usually go home the next day. Now, are they out for the procedure? Or so, are they, you know, twilight anesthesia? It, it depends on how our, our anesthesiologist will see the patient. So uh, if they think there's going to be breathing issues, if the patient's a larger issue, a larger patient, then they may use general anesthesia. If the patient's otherwise, in, in other words, good shape and we think we're going to be relatively efficient, we just may use, uh, you know, uh, the MAC, you know, twilight. But generally, you're not going to be aware of what's going on. No. They will not be aware of what's going on. Okay, so the follow-up after the ablation then. So we tell people the next day, um, you know, usually be able to go home. You have to take it easy with your leg for, you know, a couple of days. Recover from the anesthesia, whichever one w was used. Usually we give them, you know, a couple of days to, to a week. They come back in a week, see how they're doing, and then they get back to, you know, routine activities. What, what is the diagnosis of AFib mean to a patient? Well, it, it depends on how their AFib affects them. So we, if they're having a bout of AFib and they don't feel well, obviously they're not going to do their normal activities. I tell all my patients, if you're having what you think is an AFib episode, then it's your decision on, on how, to do, how to deal with it. If you need to come to seek medical attention, then you're going to do that. If you want to wait it out, you can. As, as the patient and I get to know each other, we'll say, you know, you know you're having a bout of AFib. If you can wait on it, wait on it. Sometimes it'll you know, resolve spontaneously, especially if we're you know, in the middle of treating it. Um, but if it doesn't, I always tell them, if it's going to last more than a day, just make sure you come to Deborah. Don't have breakfast, and we'll take care of it. You really should be aggressive in the treatment of this. Far too many patients are not being treated with this, either from themselves or their cardiologist. AFib, the, the key to treating it is to treat it early, you know, not to wait on it. And that strategy is no longer uh, what we do. You know, in, in the old days, we used to diagnose it, use a drug. If that didn't work, use another drug. If that didn't work, 
you know, maybe another drug or consider the ablation, and that would be a process that may take years. But nowadays, really, the sooner you get your diagnosis, the sooner your ablation is offered, the better you are. With the Cabana trial, where we looked at rhythm drugs versus ablation, and again, it, the way that it was presented the, at the Heart Rhythm Society is really the, the way the patient was treated. So it was, it was treatment received. Ablation was clearly better. Patients did better for a recurrence of atrial fibrillation, so did a better job with the rhythm. Also did better from a mortality standpoint and a uh, hospital admission, admission standpoint. So all the factors, every subset that we looked at, all of it favored ablation. So really, you know, our prejudice is really keep normal rhythm, really treat it aggressively early on, and really the, the therapy is ablation over drugs. You know, Deborah ablation is uh, done robotically, uh, actually, we're the number one robotic ablation program in the Northeast, almost the country. The ablation program robotically is safer for our patients. So if you can provide more safety with more efficacy, that's really where you want to have your ablation done. And for more information about AFib and electrical disturbances in the heart, go to demanddebora.org.